0: One of the elders here at the church. Um, we'll be reading from Obadiah 1, verses 1 through 9. Obadiah, verses 1 through 9. I'm reading this morning from the NASB. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom We have heard a report from the Lord, and an envoy has been sent among the nations, saying, Arise and let us go against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You are greatly despised. The arrogance of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in the loftiness of your dwelling place, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to earth? Though you build high like the eagle, though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if robbers by night, oh, how you will be ruined. Would they not steal only until they had had enough? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave some gleanings? Oh, how Esau will be ransacked and his hidden treasures searched out. All the men allied with you will send you forth to the border. And the men at peace with you will deceive you and overpower you. They who eat your bread will set an ambush for you. There is no understanding in him. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy wise men from Edom and understanding from the mountain of Esau? Then your mighty men will be dismayed, O Teman, in order that everyone may be cut off from the mountain of Esau by slaughter. May God bless the reading of this word. Such a peaceful reading on that. Um, (laughs) Don't you feel
1: encouraged already? Okay. Uh, I'm just curious. I have to do a survey. How many of you have ever heard a sermon on Obadiah? Yeah. Okay. There we go. That's why one of the reasons why I chose this. Um, but keep your place in Obadiah. Today we'll be going from Obadiah chapter 1. We're going verses 1 through 9 is where we will be going today. And Obadiah in a word, if you could summarize the whole book in a word, is pride. Pride. Pride describes this whole book in a nutshell, and what we see in our passage specifically today is the root of that pride. And kind of the reason, what I kind of want to do with the, the book of Obadiah and our time in the Minor Prophets is reflected in First Corinthians chapter 10. Um, this past Wednesday night I was in Grow Group, the men's Grow Group that meets on Wednesday night at 630 uh, I, I was just meeting with them, and one of the brothers in there just mentioned First Corinthians chapter 10, and, and you know, just kind of a light bulb went off. I said, I should read this on Sunday morning. Um, because it kind of gives us an idea of what we should do with the Old Testament. Now, the Old Testament, to many of us, is kind of dusky. I would imagine some of us here today, when we open our Bible to the book of Obadiah, you know, the pages still stuck together. Anybody on that one? Um, it's been a while since we've looked at it. Um, but kind of what I want to do, it mentions in First Corinthians chapter 10, it mentions how we should learn from the examples of those in the Old Testament. Verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 10 says, These things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the end of the ages have come. So we look at the minor prophets, we look at the Old Testament, we look at all those characters, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Esau, and all these guys, And we should learn lessons from them so we don't repeat them. Amen? We tend to prioritize the New Testament, and there's a lot of reasons for it. Um, But I just kind of want to say a few things. Uh, Number one, the Old Testament is the foundation of the New Testament. If you don't have a good understanding of the Old Testament, you're going to be really confused when you come into Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and especially in the book of Revelation. Number two, I believe that all Scripture is God-breathed out. So, sorry guys um, I believe that all scripture is God breathed out And all, all of it is written by God And all of it is profitable for what? For teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness So this is just as applicable in many respects as other passages in the Bible And number three, as I've already mentioned It's better to learn from the mistakes of others Rather than repeat those same mistakes Right? All parents in the room say amen Okay so Obadiah describes the issue of pride, and our passage today gets to the root. What is the root cause of pride? And pride can be a dangerous thing. It says this in Proverbs sixteen eighteen: 18. Pride, pride goeth before destruction, and a haughty spirit before the fall. Pride can be a dangerous thing. In 1909... The British ship company, White Star Line, decided to build the world's largest ship. At a modern cost of $150 million, they built a ship that was three football fields long, two football fields high, and one in width. This ship had first-class accommodations. On the ship itself was a gymnasium, a swimming pool, restaurants, cafes, a Turkish bath, opulent cabins. This steamboat could travel 24 miles per hour, 24 miles per hour, could carry 2,400 passengers, and it was a floating city of luxury. The captain of that ship in 1909 was chosen for his experience to take it on its maiden voyage. The captain of that ship was named Edward Smith. He was 62 years old and a long veteran of other world class boats. On this world-class ship's maiden voyage, the captain sought to make sure his ship arrived at its destination in record time to get all of the headlines in New York City. He decided to make record time despite the danger he knew was ahead. So on April 10, 1912, the captain set out from Southampton, England, for the ship's maiden voyage, He pushed the ship to its max with little regard to the danger that lied ahead, the danger of icebergs, because he thought the ship was unsinkable. The builders, the passengers, the captain, all took pride in this world-class boat, but they had a false sense of security, carrying only enough lifeboats to carry 1,178 passengers despite its 2400 on board pride caused the fall 5 days in its maiden voyage it hit an iceberg and 1500 people fell to their death in the north atlantic that boat was the rms titanic we see there that pride caused the fall it disregarded any danger ahead and it was a disaster pride was its downfall But pride can be the downfall of any believer in Jesus Christ. A Christian who is fueled by pride stands on the deck of the Titanic. Friends, there is only one rock and fortress. There is only one strong tower. How does pride in a Christian, in modern day, how does pride show itself? Well, uh, not wanting to listen it would be one, right? You have pride, not wanting to listen, constant comparison to other people, focusing on others' shortcomings, the desire to be right, sin without repentance, and with my seven year old stubbornness. But the question we are answering today is not do Christians struggle with pride? That's a given. And if you don't struggle with pride, or if you say you don't, then you most certainly do. Okay, so so we'll talk afterwards. Okay, but the question we are answering today is not, do Christians actually struggle with pride? But really this question, what causes pride? What is at its root? What is its base? What is its cause? Because in order to undo the fruit of pride, we must get to the root of pride. And what we see in our text today, we see one root cause of pride seen ...in the nation of Edom. So if you have your Bible, turn to Obadiah chapter 1. And today we'll go from verses 1 through 9. To kind of orient us to this book, today what I want to do is kind of... ...as we go through verses 1 through 9, I'm going to unfold my point... ...but also to unpack the background of this book... ...such as author and dates and all that kind of good stuff. Obadiah is the shortest book in the Old Testament. It's only 21 verses long and it is one of only two old testament prophets written explicitly to another country so this one is written to edom and the there's one other minor prophet that's written to a different country can anybody guess that this is bible a wanna bible quizzing moment yeah that's right the book of nahum nahum is the book that jonah wanted to write nahum is judgment upon nineveh okay So that's who that particular book is written to. Nahum is that book. The book of Obadiah is written as a warning of what is to come to the country of Edom. We see Obadiah breaks down into three main parts. Verses 1 through 14 is the charge. Verses 15 and 16 is the verdict. And 17 through 21 is the redemption. And today we'll unpack verses 1 through 9. So what is the charge? What have they done wrong? If you notice in your text, we'll begin with verse 1. This has a lot of, we would say, background information, help us understand kind of why this book was written and all that kind of good stuff. So the vision of Obadiah is the very first phrase in the book of Obadiah. There are 11 different Obadiahs mentioned in the Old Testament. So when there are 11 of them, we really don't know which one of them actually wrote this book. The word Obadiah means servant of God or servant of Yahweh. It is written by Obadiah. And then if you notice, the next phrase says, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. I want to point out something really quick. So who actually wrote the book? So if you notice up here, you have two different interlocking truths. Actually, what I see is verbal, in plenary inspiration of Scripture. That the vision of Obadiah, Obadiah wrote it down, but who also wrote it? Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. That is verbal, plenary inspiration of Scripture, that God wrote the Bible through the unique personalities of the authors. So if you notice in your text, too, this, these two words right here, it says Lord God. Now, when I was studying this passage, I expected to see the word LORD, uh, kind of in all caps, to see the word Yahweh, if you know that. If you see the word LORD in your Old Testament in all caps, that means Yahweh. But that's not the case at all. The word LORD is the Hebrew word, and one of you can tell me afterwards if I'm correct, um, Adonai, which means master or ruler. And then the word God here is actually the word Yahweh. So what is it saying? The vision of Obadiah thus says the master and ruler who is Yahweh. Yahweh means, "I am who I am, He is a self-existent one, right? He is the God, the Lord God concerning Edom. Now, another thing I want to point out real quick is the last phrase. Obviously we see the audience there, but what's the significance of these two words in this whole phrase? What is Obadiah and what is God saying? That God is not just the God of Israel, but that he is master and ruler. He is the self-existent one. He is master and God over Edom and over all of the world. He is God over all concerning Edom. And if you notice that in your text, of course, Edom is the audience. Now, what do we know about the country of Edom? The country of Edom is to the east of Israel kind of put it in perspective, I think we think of the nation of Israel, you know, when we kind of imagine it in our mind, we think of it as like the size of Texas or something. We think of it as just this big, giant country that changed the world, that the, the center of human affairs for the last 5,000 years have been there in the nation of Israel, um, but the nation of Israel is about the size of New Jersey. Let's put it this way, the, the country of Israel is about the size of North Alabama, It's tiny. So then, the country of Edom lies to the east. Kind of put it in perspective. You have New Jersey, and then what do you have? What other small state borders New Jersey? You have the state of Delaware across the Delaware River. So if you know Edom, it is to the southeast of Israel. It's across the Jordan River. The Jordan River is not a big river, guys. It's not like the Mississippi. It's it's like the Flint. Have you ever seen the Flint River around here? It's about the size of the Jordan River, and and it's also across the Dead Sea. Now, put the Dead Sea in perspective. It's about the size of Lake Tahoe, if you've ever been there before. So it's just a small area. I mean, you can literally throw a rock across the Jordan River to the nation of Edom. But what else do we know about the nation of Edom? We know from the biblical account that Edom and Israel, what? Hated each other. And it all started over a cup of soup. A cup of Hebrew chili, okay? I wonder if they put onions and cheese in theirs. So who is Edom? The conflict begins, we see it in Genesis chapter 36, well even before that we see the conflict Edom are, is the descendant of Esau, if you remember that. And Israel, of course, is the descendant of Jacob. Now, what happened? Let's remember, why do Edom and why do Israel hate each other? What well, goes back a long way. What happened? So Esau, if you're not familiar with the story, I'm going to try to do the 30,000-foot view. I'm going to try to scan about uh, 10 chapters of the Old Testament in like 20 seconds. Okay, hang in there. Um, So basically, if you remember that story, Esau and Jacob are what? We're twins, right? So Esau was born first, but Jacob was what? Grabbing his heel. So Jacob means heel catcher or one who supplants. That's kind of the idea of his name. So Esau is born first. Why is that important? Because the inheritance and the blessing Always went to the oldest son, so Esau is first in line. Jacob knows that, so Jacob, who means heel or one who surplants, decides to find a way to take the inheritance from Esau for himself. You remember this whole story? Am I anybody tracking with me on this? Am I making sense? Okay. So what happens is, is Jacob, Esau is coming in from hunting, I believe, off the top of my head, and Jacob is cooking a nice cup of Hebrew chili. And uh, Esau walks in and Jacob offers him this cup of soup. And Esau gives Jacob his inheritance, the money portion of it, uh, to Jacob for that cup of soup. So that's the money portion. But then there's a the second asset that's supposed to go to Esau. It is the covenantal blessing of Abraham. So Jacob now has the money from Isaac and Abraham. He has the money portion of the inheritance, the estate, But he doesn't quite have the blessing, the covenantal inheritance of the promise of God to Abraham and Isaac. So then what does Jacob do? He then puts on a hairy garment. I think it was an animal skin. And he tricks Isaac to giving Jacob the blessing instead of Esau before Isaac dies. uh, Because Isaac couldn't see. So Jacob steals the blessing and sells and Esau sells the inheritance to Jacob for a cup of soup. Now, um, you don't have to raise your hand to this, but how many of you have ever had uh, somebody betray you for any reason? Um, do you like them? I, I, I mean, do you really... It probably takes a little while to kind of forgive and, you know, that kind of stuff. So what do you think Esau does once Jacob steals the blessing and once he realizes... What he has given up with a cup of soup, there is this collision course between Jacob and Esau in the Old Testament. They forgive one another at one time, but then their descendants are on a continual collision course for the next 4,000 years. Think about this. I want you to think about the consequences of actions. Okay? Alright? The reason the Israelites and the Arabs as a whole don't get along is because of what? Because of isaac and ishmael because abraham decided to have a child with hagar the reason the palestinians and the israelites don't get along today is because of jacob and esau that one man's sin has a ripple effect even to today's culture so we see this conflict between edom and israel but why is their conflict the center of this book If you have your text, go down to verse 12. Verse 12 not only reveals to us what the conflict is, but also helps us understand the date of this book. Verse 12 says this. Do not gloat over your brother's day, the day of his misfortune, and do not rejoice over the sons of Judah. And then Notice the word Judah that gives us a good idea of the date as well. And then he says, do not gloat over your brother's day, the day of his misfortune. So something just happened to the nation of Judah. What just happened? The date of this particular book is probably about 586 B.C. It was directly after Babylon comes into Judah and conquers them and then deports the nation, or at least the cream of the crop, back to the land of Babylon. If you remember that story, men like Daniel went to Babylon in exile and then so that's kind of why we date this book is immediately after the fall of Jerusalem. Now, um, just a picture of this with me. How many of you have ever watched a movie before and you rooted you rooted for the demise of the bad guy? You know what I'm talking about? You're like there's this really mean bad guy and once he gets what's coming to him, you just like want to stand up in your seat and rejoice. That's what Edom is doing. They are rejoicing over the demise of their neighboring country Judah and their conquering of from Babylon and their deportation. So Edom is essentially rubbing their nose in Judah's pain. So they notice Obadiah one one through two. That's the date and now notice the reason why it was written. And an envoy has been sent out among the nations saying, "This arise and let us go against her for battle. Behold." I will make you small among the nations. You are greatly despised. Why was this book written? It was because to warn Edom of what? The envoy that has been sent out among the nations. Arise and let us go. This is a warning shot to the nation of Edom for what is about to come. What did Edom do wrong? Verse 3. The arrogance of your heart. The word arrogance there in the Hebrew can mean pride as well. Can I just say, can pride deceive our hearts? Yeah. It can change our view of ourselves, of other people, of our relationship with God. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the cleft of the rock, in the loftiness of your dwelling places, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to earth, though you build high like the eagle, Though you set your nest among the stars from there, I will bring you down, declares the Lord. So what has caused their pride? The the reason Obadiah is writing to the nation of Edom is because of the arrogance of their heart, that their arrogance has deceived them. But what is their pride rooted in? A root of pride is this, is a false sense of security. A false sense of security. Where do I get that from? Notice in your text, why are they prideful? Why do they have a false sense of security? Notice again in verse 3. You live in the cleft of the rock, in the loftiness of your dwelling places, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to earth, though you build high like the eagle, though you set your nest among the stars. From there I will bring you down what is causing their pride a false sense of security in their possessions what does he say those homes that you have in the cleft of the rock that you've dug out in sandstone that you think are completely impenetrable unconquerable to other nations i'm bringing you down those are that is a false sense of security in their possessions Friends, there is only one rock and a fortress. There is only one strong tower. You don't have to raise your hand to us either. How many of you have ever seen the movie, maybe I shouldn't say this, but Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade? Have you ever seen that? Okay. In, uh, too old? Okay. You know. All right. Um, how many of you weren't born yet before that movie came out? Okay. That's the better question. So if you remember that movie, at the very end, where are they? They're at the city of petra so if you this the vision of petra it's in a slot canyon that is edom that's why they felt that their homes were absolutely impenetrable because their country is in these slot canyons they have caves where they can hide their homes are defensible that's why they feel that way let me put a pause so a root of pride that we have is a false sense of security. So I got to be thinking this week. I don't know if that's good grammar. Okay, I was thinking this week, what are some things that cause people a false sense of security? The first one I came to was, of course, possessions, right? Our possessions give us A false sense of security, our gun and our gun safe, right? Okay, it gives us a feeling of being safe. A paid-for home would be one of those. Or a paid-for bunker in the desert with enough ammo for an army, okay? That gives us a false sense of security. I was related to a guy like that. There was a guy, I won't say who he was, a guy I was related to spent, in the 1980s, spent $600,000 in the 80s, friends. Building a bunker in New Mexico for doomsday. That gave him a false sense of security. What else do we take pride in? What else gives us a false sense of security? Well, number two is our money. A nice nest egg, rent payments from from tenants. What else gives us a false sense of security? Number three is relationships. Well, my parents will bail me out. My children will take care of me. Number four that gives us a false sense of security and pride is our own intelligence. I'll be able to figure it out. I don't need God. I don't need to trust him. I don't need to trust God for my possessions or my money or any of the things that I place security in. But there is only one rock and fortress. There's only one strong tower. There is a false security that we have in our human nature in possessions, in money, in relationships with other people, and in our own intelligence. Watch this. So verses three and four talk about the security of possessions. Your homes will not, were not invulnerable. If the thieves came to you, what is he talking about here? If the, if robbers by night, oh how you will be ruined, would they not steal only until they had enough if grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave some gleanings? Oh how Esau will be ransacked and his treasures, hidden treasures be searched out. Okay. So Edom has a false sense of security and it gives them pride because they go on the sidelines, go na 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 to Israel. And God is saying to them, uh, uh, I am Yahweh and I am master. You're going to get it. You have pride, you have a false security in your homes, but also what's the other problem here? Their treasures will be found. What else do they have a security in? In their money. That all of those hiding places in the cliffs that you have, all the gold, all the treasure that makes you feel rich and secure, all that will disappear. Do we as Americans have place security in our money? Yeah. Each of us here today live better than the richest man in the world did a 100 years ago. We as Americans don't take so much pride in our possession. Well, we actually do. Never mind. Let me take that phrase out. Delete. Um, We do. But I think even more, we take pride and have a false sense of security in our money. But who who should we trust? You know, we trust... Our intelligence, we trust the money we have in the bank, but there's only one rock and one fortress. That guy is Adonai Yahweh. He is God. We must trust the Lord and not put our pride and our security in things of this world, things under the sun. If you feel like your money is impenetrable, that you don't really need God because you have a nice nest egg, then I hope you didn't have money in Silicon Valley Bank. I'm just saying or all your money in cryptocurrency. That there is proof. We should, listen, I'm all for fiscal responsibility. I'm all for diversifying. It says in the book of Ecclesiastes, cast your bread upon the water. Don't put all your eggs in one basket is what he's saying. I'm all for diversification. But that at the end of the day, we can't put our security, our hope, and our trust in our bank account. But in one person, in him alone. That's the point of this in verses 5 and 6. And then he continues on. So we see they have a false insecurity in their money. Is blank The next blank in your notes if you're following along with me. And then he continues on. All the men allied with you will send you forth to the border and the men at peace with you will deceive you and overpower you. They who eat your bread... We'll set an ambush for you. There is no understanding in him. Okay. What is Obadiah and God saying to Edom? That an envoy, a message has gone on to all the nations because of your arrogance that has deceived you. You have placed your security and possessions and money. But here in verse 6 and 7, what else have they placed their trust in? Their allies. What does it say in verse 6? All the men allied with you. They feel... Invincible, because they have friends around them, the Ammonites and the Amalekites and the Jebusites and all of these people. Um, Let us be careful not to trust people more than we trust the Lord. God is saying to them, all of those relationships, all of those allies that you trust are coming at you and coming down towards you. And then one other thing. That gives them a false sense of security in their relationships with other nations. This is the next blank in your notes. But if you don't have anything else, if you can't trust your possessions, you can't trust your money, you can't trust your friendships for ultimate uh, safety and security, then what else can you possibly find? Verse 8. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy wise men from Edom? And understanding from the mountain of Esau, then your mighty men will be dismayed, O Timon, so that everyone may cut off from the mountains of Esau by slaughter. The Edomites here are trusting in their intelligence, their wise men, the men that are leaders in their country, their ability to understand, to plan, to comprehend. If you have nothing else. If you don't trust your money, you don't trust your possessions, you don't trust your relationships, maybe you trust your ability to figure it out. How many of you have ever said that before? You don't have to raise your hand. I'll just figure it out. Friends, there's only one Adonai and one Yahweh. There's only one rock and fortress. There's only one shield. There's only one thing under the sun and above the sun that does not change. It is God himself. He is the only one we truly can trust for our sense of security. If we take pride in anything else, then it will fall. What can we learn from Edom? Pride. A root of pride is a false sense of security. You know, I'm sure all of us have said this, I hope they learn from my mistakes. I hope that we can learn from the mistakes of the Edomites. One person said this, The Edomites felt secure and they were proud of their self-sufficiency, but they were fooling themselves because there is no lasting security apart from God. Is your security in an object or people? They go on and they say, Ask yourself how much lasting security those things offer. Possessions and money can disappear in a moment, but God does not change. Only he can supply true security. A Christian that is rooted in pride, a Christian that trusts in their money, possessions, intelligence, or relationships is standing on the deck of the Titanic. What does it say in the Bible? That God is what opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble? pride is antithetical to a relationship with god it's antithetical to a holy and righteous christian life that we cannot be prideful in ourselves if we truly want to follow the lord why why is humility required because humility reminds us what that we need the lord that he is god and that we are not that we should pursue him and not trust in anything created under the sun let us not be like, also like Nebuchadnezzar, if you remember that story. He is prideful, he boasts, and I hope none of us have to eat grass for, I believe, seven years just to learn that lesson. If I see you eating the front yard, then I know what happened this week. <laughs> okay, <laughs> okay, I'll pray for you if you're eating grass. Um, but the question we have is, so what? You know, how do we apply this to our life? You know, I had somebody recently tell me, they kind of pulled me aside, and they said, you know, Byron, you know, you really like to step on people's toes. I don't think they really meant it in an uplifting way. Um, I think they meant it in a way that, um, please stop. Okay. Um, but my goal, listen, my goal when I preach, whenever I teach, it's just to make it real it's real life because friends we all struggle with pride amen we all stand on the top of a cliff looking down on other people on the precipice of our money of our possessions of our relationships of our intelligence And and pride shows itself in comparison, in stubbornness, in a lack of listening. That is how pride shows up. We each, including this guy, I'm not above my struggle with pride, okay? If I said that I was the most humble person on earth, then you know I struggle with pride, amen? We all struggle with pride. It's just the way life is. So my question is, you know, when I do a so what, when I talk about the application, my goal is never to any and burn anybody or or put anybody down or to call anybody out. That's that's not that's not cool. I don't do that. I really don't. My goal is this is for us to mainly look at our relationship with the Lord. And see what obstacles are in the way. Is there pride holding us back? from truly trusting the Lord and pursuing Him? Is there sin in our life that we haven't confessed to the Lord? So my question for you today is, where is an area of pride in your life? Maybe a better way to answer that is this. What gives you a sense of security? What do you trust in instead of the Lord? Is it your money, possessions, intelligence, or relationships? On the back of your note sheet, I would encourage you, there is a blank, I believe. And this week, what I would like you to do is just have a moment of self-reflection so that we don't end up being the lawnmower at Calvary Bible Church, okay? I don't want you to end up being Nebuchadnezzar. It's better to learn from people than to repeat the same mistake, amen? Let's not be like the Edomites, Edomites who stand on the other side of the Jordan River going na 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 to Judah and for their demise. Let us rather learn, where is pride in our life? better question is, where are you trusting in besides the Lord? God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. If there is any obstacle of pride in your life, you must remove it. Trust the Lord. Humble yourselves in the presence of God in order to truly follow Him. Psalm 20 says Some boast in chariots and some in horses, but we will boast in the name of our God. Do not trust in princes or in mortal man in whom there is no salvation. For the Lord opens the eyes of the blind, the Lord raises up those who are bowed down, the Lord loves the righteous, the Lord protects the strangers. He supports the fatherless and the widow, but he thwarts the way of the wicked. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations, praise the Lord. Let us trust God and not put our pride in anything created under the sun. But before I close, uh, some of you today have the issue of pride but for a different reason. Some of you here today have a false sense of security. If I asked you the question today, if you died, where would you go? If you would say heaven, then my next question for you would be why? If you think you're going to heaven, why? If there is any other answer besides the sufficient blood of Christ and faith in him, then you are not a believer in Jesus Christ. Many Christians today, if I asked you the question, would you go to heaven? They would say yes. And if I said, "If why would you go to heaven? They would say, well, because I'm a good person. I think a lot of people that go to church today have that answer. But what does the scripture say? For all have sin and fall short of the glory of god that there is no one righteous no not one that all of us fall short of god's perfection and god's holiness the only way to heaven is by faith in christ jesus alone we must confess jesus as lord that means repent of our sin seeing our need of a savior putting jesus as the ruler and master of our life in that we must believe in him, that he died on the cross and that he rose again. If you are unsure of where you are with Christ, I would encourage you to see me after the service. And for believers, let us trust in the Lord and not in our roots of pride that we so hold dear. Pray with me. Father, thank you for this morning. Uh, The book of Obadiah is that dusty book that we probably haven't studied in depth. And, uh, Lord, it's just a, a timely reminder, especially for us as Americans, just in our sense of invincibility, our sense of wealth, Lord, to remind us that we, there's only one person that does not change. There's only one being that we truly can trust in under the sun, and that is you who is above the sun. Lord, I pray for those that do not know you as Savior. Lord, I pray that they would humble themselves and that they would see their need for Jesus. They would see their sin. They would see that they cannot earn their way to heaven. And Lord, that they would trust in you for their salvation. I thank you for Calvary. I, I do. Um, I thank you for my church family, all of them. Even if someone is visiting for the first time today, I thank you for all those who are in this room. I pray for them that they would respond today to you that they would grow, and that they would not seek uh, pride, and that they would not hide
0: behind those walls, and that they would trust you in all things. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.